Hello, this is your host, Marshall Fields, and welcome to Positive Communication Habits and Thought Process, or P-Chat-P for short. Here, we talk about real-life experiences and mindsets that help us navigate difficult conversations, even if we're just talking to ourselves. We can change the world by changing how we talk to it. This episode, we tackle some tough and provocative questions with our guest, Lisa Laurie, a pioneer in the equine industry and owner of Spyco's Farm. Lisa grew up in an homogeneously white suburb outside of Boston, Massachusetts. She earned a BS in nursing and went on to obtain a master's in healthcare management while working the floor as a nurse. She worked for the AIDS program of the Massachusetts Department of Health and the Center for Disease Control before moving to Virginia and working as an ICU CCU nurse. After moving to Long Island, her daughter's interest in writing sparked her own journey in the equine industry leading her to start Spyco's Farm in Lexington, Kentucky in 2009. The farm now includes divisions for breeding, development and training, rehabilitation, quarantine, a stallion station, and an education center, and employs over 60 people and offers internships to 30 students annually. Lisa is a committed champion of promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the equine industry. Lisa, welcome to the show. I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. You are a very unique individual, and there's just so much value in your life experiences, just as I've gotten to know you. And it would just be crazy not to capture and share this with some folks, because I just see some some life lessons and I see some value in someone who's achieved your level of success, being able to share you know, parts of your journey parts of your, you know, perceptions, just your thought processes in in general. So I have a bunch of questions for you. Somewhat I'm going to interrogate you, but it's the only way I can get to the good stuff. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm I'm ready. (laughs) All right. I love learning about what motivates successful business owners. And, you know, I'd like to know, like, what are, what are three of your top motivators for being in the equine industry? Well, it started out because I needed to be near my daughter. She was competing on a high level in the equestrian industry, and I I wanted to be with her. I wanted to be with my family. And in doing so, I realized that there were issues about the industry that hadn't been addressed. And it was not really a formally organized industry. There was a lot of room for change and growth. And I'm a person who needs a project at all times. So, you know, I was spending a lot of time being a very good stage mom and sitting on the sidelines and not injecting myself into her journey, but it allowed me a lot of time to think about how the Italian industry could be improved and where the access points were for that. And uh, so I found some access points and I decided to act on them and I wanted to be able to have an impact. So I was able to have an impact. You know, sometimes we might be the only person who sees a problem, which Mm -hmm. means we're the one who's meant to fix it. So that's why you have inventors and entrepreneurs. That's the way they think. And that's the way they see the world. Mm. They see the holes. And uh, there was a very clear hole for me that I saw and which happened to be how do you utilize 
the excellent genetic material that all these Americans had bought and brought over to the United States, but it wasn't being used in a systematic and strategic way to have an impact for Americans. So, you know, we could either continue to go and buy from the European Union all the time or create an industry here and utilize both, which has happened. And what's even more fun is now we're globalizing and and we're a player at at the table of this industry now. So we're doing a lot of back and forth interesting stuff with breeding of warm bloods in, in my particular case. And it's it's fascinating because you get to deal with all different viewpoints on this industry and it grows your knowledge of how you might change yours or how it might just be unique to an American market and, and you keep certain things that they can't access just as much as they keep things that I can't access. Proprietorship. Love well, it's it. not even that. It's like those, the, the breeders over in Europe have been sitting around pub tables with their pints of beer talking about pedigrees for generations. We haven't. Mm. Thoroughbreds have, but, but not warm blood people. And so I have to access that knowledge in a different way. And on the other side, my clientele is completely different than what their clientele is. They have, they're, they're not looking at this as a business. They're looking at it from a much more sentimental viewpoint. Mm. And I, I know that. I understand that. I know how to serve that population. To them, they look at that and say, why would they act that way? So I have a question for you, and this is more for our audience, because as we as we get into the equine industry, I know many people have heard of Spicos Farms mm-hmm. and, you know, many people in the equine industry, when they hear warm bloods, they're like, yeah, they know what that is. For those that don't know what warm bloods are, could you give us like the Reader's Digest uh, description? Yeah. So the quick and dirty on it is back in the day, they bred racehorses to plow horses hot blood to cold blood in order to create a horse that would be good in war. They created the cavalry horse and that was an agile, intelligent, but uh, had a great solid brain and was sturdier of body in order to fight and be active during wartime. With the advent of the tank, they didn't need that anymore. We used quarter horses and the horses that the Spaniards had brought over combined with Mustangs and things like that. That's what we used over here, but over there, that's what they used. So, but with the advent of the tank, they didn't really need them anymore. So they, they had been using them for the hunt, but they created horse sport. So when you think about jumpers, hunters, equitation, dressage, those are all creations that pretty much came after horses were no longer needed in war. So, which is a good thing, right? Over here, we created the hunt in the hunter seat uh, industry because there were lots of thoroughbreds that once they were done with their careers needed second jobs. But about roughly 20 years, let's call it 20 years ago, Americans started importing warm bloods over to the United States because they suited the higher level of the sport better. And the sport had, some of these sports had changed and they do evolve over time. Dressage, 
show jumping, uh, event, eventing. They, they evolve over time. They change the rules a little bit or how the courses are designed. So the thoroughbreds weren't going to be able to be at the top of the game anymore. So people started importing warm bloods. And right. that's kind of the quick and dirty on them. Okay. I breed show jumpers. So if you watch the Olympics and you see them jumping the really high objects, mm -hmm. that's what I breed for. But even though you breed for that, you're going to, you only get maybe 5% that are just like with racing. You only get maybe 5% that are going to hit the top of the sport. Gotcha. So all the others do something different in this, in sports, in horse sport. Okay. So you have to know what the horse wants to be when it grows up. You have okay. to figure that out. Okay. Makes so sense. That's it. So people can, you know, get a good understanding when we talk about the company that you've built, when we talk about Spyco's Farms, I've said it before, I said it in your bio, uh, you're very successful. So not to get into your financials too much, but I would say that um, you, you make more than six figures as far as what your, uh, your profit is. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Well, actually, no. My business, although I've been running it seriously for about 12 years now, I think it's 12. Yeah. 12 years is just now becoming profitable. Okay. Which is not unusual for a startup business. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes, if you can go the distance financially, right. Gotcha. Um, but even a, a, a smaller scale business will take a couple of years, a couple, three years to become truly profitable. So you have to be able to have the finances to go the distance. That's one of mm -hmm. the big problems with, say, people of color accessing capital to start businesses. They need to have True that story. runway, right? True story. I happen to have a runway. And so it was not something I was expecting to have. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a middle-class background. I was a nurse. I just never anticipated that I would be in this situation, mm -hmm. but it came uh, naturally. It, it grew. And when I all of a sudden had access to a lot of capital, I could flourish in that environment. And my inner entrepreneur came out. And gotcha. But if you have populations that can't access that, you, you don't access the, the beauty of, of their ideas and their, and their talents and what they could bring to the table. And, and what you're saying right there, it really makes me think of the fact that dreams are not free and they're not free from a standpoint of you have to sacrifice parts of yourself and your time and your discipline, but you also have to sacrifice financially. Like there's it, you have to pay in order to bring a dream to life. And, and I think that I misspoke earlier. I said um, six figures of profit. I meant, six figures of revenue generation as far as money that is coming in and, and, you know, clients that you're working with. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, you know, there's a few things that can make your business the best. And one of them is you're the first, uh, you're the best. And, and the other is if you serve a clientele that is essentially inflation resistant mm -hmm. and I Tick all those boxes. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the horsing industry is going to go anywhere. It's a feeling, gut feeling I have. You know, right. well, <laughs> uh, for better or for worse, there is a group of people who make this their playground that 
can support the industry in downtimes. Your average run-of-the-mill person may have a horse and not be able to afford the feed if inflation is too bad, you know. Mm. But the people who are operating at the high end of the sport typically can weather all those storms. And those are my, most of my clients. Now, those are my in-house clients. Those are the ones who board and breed here with me. However, we have a, a stallion station that serves anybody. And I'm very conscious of keeping my prices for the rehab and fitness center, for my semen sales, any of that sort of stuff that goes directly to the general public. Mm-hmm. I'm very conscious to keep those costs at a level that anyone participating can, you know, can, can tolerate. So it's not like I charge more than any other farm. You know, if you were to go to any other farm of any other size, I don't really charge more. I just have access to uh, more affluent clients. Well, speaking of affluent clients, you know, I mean, that that becomes definitely a part of the success that you're able to have. But I have to ask, on your way to becoming the thriving business that Spico's Farms is today, did you ever face like negative self-talk or that internal dialogue that could have prevented you from growing your business? Strangely, no. <laughs> I. <laughs> that, that's good. Uh, you know, I always say uh, one of my talents is that I was uh, born with, uh, achieved along the way. I'm not exactly sure how it happened. I have Boku uh, self-confidence, always, pretty much always have, and don't really understand why that is, but it's always been something I believed I could, I could achieve anything I really wanted to set my mind to, and it's one of the reasons why I like to mentor young people because when they see that level of self-confidence, they go, well, wait a minute, why can she do it and not me? And, and I like to give them little pearls of wisdom about, yeah, Along the you way. can do it. Don't, don't be your own enemy. Mm. There's plenty of, plenty of other enemies out there, plenty of other challenges you're going to meet. But mm. if at all possible, don't make your own self one of those challenges. Now that doesn't work with everybody. I understand that, but, but I've just never had that issue. That's awesome. (laughs) The fact that you are willing to, you know, step into that mentorship role and and help people kind of discover some of that, because I remember growing up, I didn't have a very high level of confidence and I would see kids like you out on the playground or just in life. And I'd be like, why are they so like, what makes them so, you know, I'm like, wow. Okay. It has nothing to do with anything physical material. It's not about if they have the newest shoes, the newest clothes, it has nothing to do with that. There is something on the inside of that person. That's like, I can do it. I will do it. I want to do it. I don't care. I'll talk to anybody. I got a question. I asked the question. I, you know, I, I see something. I want it. I'll, I'll go after it. And That's I just right. think that if we can pass that on and help share that with, you know, the youth or not even just youth, you know, adults, other adults, you know, help move them forward. Talking about that, you, you host a large number of opportunities to educate and introduce you to the equine industry, um, as well as some adults. And, you know, mm-hmm. from job shadowing, short and long term internships, uh, veterinary student opportunities, as well as uh, workforce readiness and reentry programs in partnership with the Blackburn uh, Correctional Complex. Mm-hmm. During a recent meeting we had, I was able 
to get to see your passion for wanting to empower diversity through youth involvement. So like, what's the source of that passion? Well, one of it is to pass on this, this sense that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it, you know, given your, the constraints that you're in. Right. The other is the horses are natural born therapists. They just take care of people. And I've seen it. Hmm. Uh, and I've seen it over and over again, the impact that they have on young people who are suffering for ever, whatever reason, going through trauma, older people, people with substance issues, people with autism or on the autism spectrum. I've just seen it over and over. I've seen my horses behave differently with those people and hmm. in an accommodating way. And I just feel I've got this resource and you, I need to share that with people who value it. And you spend any, you spend an hour watching the fellows that I employ from Blackburn and you'll see it. Hands down, you'll see it. You spend an hour with, you'll spend 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes with children who, who are bust in, who are on the spectrum. You'll see it. I've had kids speak their first full sentences as soon as they saw, as soon as they touched a horse. I've had kids who spin, stop spinning for hours just while they're with a horse. I've had kids who have been sold into sexual slavery, basically, and who have been rescued from that. I've watched them interact with the horse and the horse wrap their neck around that child in an embrace. You see things like that and you're like, wow, this isn't anything I'm doing. The horses are doing it. And when you see that, you can't keep, you want people to come and experience it. The other part of that is my children. My children are very involved in outreach into different kinds of uh, cultures and my, my daughter actually worked uh, for the Bard Prison Initiative. So she helped that organization educate uh, incarcerated individuals. And they've broken down some of the preconceptions that I had about people with substance use disorders, people who have been incarcerated, people from other cultures. And I think it's my duty as an evolving being to, to evolve the way I think and to, and to push, push this forward in a positive way. If I've been given all this good fortune, how do you not access that to, to push this conversation forward? That, you know. so what I'm hearing in that is stewardship and, mm-hmm. you know, caring about communities and advocating for diversity and equity is something many businesses, they talk about. What do, what do you think are some of the barriers that organizational leaders face in implementing community outreach programs that are focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think entities that are considering it and, and have their reservations, is that what you're asking me? Mm-hmm, correct. Yeah, I think it's lack of knowledge of, of and, and fear of making a mistake. You know, I... I'm an older white woman. I don't understand the way <laughs> the, the black community in Lexington, let's say, what 
where your, where your culture is. I can never hope to know what that is. I, you know, I don't, that's not my driving force is to understand that, but it is to be able to work with that population in order to have them benefit from some of the largesse in terms of horses and in, in, in the business that I have. So I think that people are afraid of that difference, of that they might blunder or make a mistake. And you can't be afraid of saying the wrong, wrong word, you know, of saying black instead of African-American. You know, that is like a very real thing that people like me have to negotiate. And we might not always have the appropriate language until we've utilized it enough. Yeah. Right. And it's also an individual thing, too. Um, Absolutely. I know some people that prefer black. Some people prefer black, formerly enslaved. Yep. Other people prefer African-American. You know, there there is that like individualized component that makes it even more tricky. It's just like, you know, I, I try to accommodate you the best yeah. that I can based upon, but not being afraid and and taking that step to, to communicate, knowing mm-hmm. that there is no perfect way. Like I work in communication. I love it, but I will tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is no ironclad, perfect, 100,000% of the time way to communicate to anybody. And, you know, especially when you start to outreach and you're touching more people, more different ways of thinking and whatnot. So guess what? That requires self-confidence. That requires- We're back to that. My saying, okay, Marshall's going to understand what I mean and what, what I'm, that I'm speaking from the heart, whether I use the right term that he's comfortable with or not. Okay. You have to have that confidence that people can see what's really your motivator. Mm. Um, so you may use the wrong word, but, and there are some words you just don't use. Right. I mean, I can't stand it when somebody calls me honey in a restaurant, you know, and, and there are worse words. Right. But (laughs) <laughs> Some would say, yeah, but there are, and, and there are words that your culture is able to use for you. And there are some that I'm able to use for me, but I can't use for you. You know, I, it's a, I mean, there's that, there's that whole navigation, but I think if the population you're hoping to serve is forgiving enough and you're willing to take on the, the slings and arrows of attempting to work with this population, the synergy is going to end up way beyond what you think it's going to be, you know, you're going to achieve something beyond your wildest dreams. Mm. And, and you just, you have to be able to take on that risk. And I'm not talking about a financial risk because there's plenty of research and evidence that shows that synergy is literally more profitable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. that shouldn't even be a question. Right. Right. So it's really the risk of how is the rest of your staff going to uh, respond to this? Don't uh, want to ruffle but, any feathers. No, no, it's not that. It's, I look at it the other way around. Belonging is such an important part of DEI. You do not want to bring in, you know, five kids uh, from colorful population into a hostile environment. That's one of the worst things you could do. So you have to make sure that, your staff will be a, an embracing environment, mm, yeah. right? It's not that I don't want to ruffle their feathers. I'm taking the temperature of my uh, facility to make sure that I, I'm going to do good and not harm mm. by going forward with this initiative. That's what I'm concerned about. I know that my 
folks will benefit if they have an open enough heart to take on this, uh, whatever you want to call it, project. You know, if if they want to take on this endeavor, this initiative. So have you ever found yourself in a conversation with someone who, you know, seemed to be apathetic regarding diversity or aversive when it comes to the topic of diversity? Sure. All right. But how did you handle it? The ones who are apathetic, you know, if I can't stir up a little interest, maybe no one can, or, or they have their own things that they're dealing with. You know, they, I'm not here to proselytize, you know, I'm happy to discuss it with you, but I'm not here to say everybody should be doing this for exactly the reason that I just spoke about. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody. It's, it shouldn't be attempted in every situation. Hopefully we'll get there one day. But I, but hostile situations are not where you want to put uh, populations that are underserved. You want to change the system <laughs> so that it's accepting. So uh-huh. if they're apathetic about it, will they be any good at it? No. <laughs> right? And if they're hostile about it, I might try and change somebody's mind. You know, I'll have a discussion over a meal or something like that. But you know, the chances that you're going to get them to a place where they already, they do it a 180 yeah. are limited. And it very much depends on where I am when I have that discussion. You know, is it at my workplace? Mm-hmm. Is it personal? Is it a professional situation out in the world? That's different. But I will tell you that I'm an investor in a building project and I Myself and another board member were very adamant that we are be very inclusive. And the rest of the board seemed kind of apathetic about it. Mm -hmm. And we said, no, we're going to do this. You know, we were very adamant about it and said, no, this is going to be part of what we do. And we turned it around and everybody's like, oh, yeah, that'd be a great idea. You know, so I will put pressure in a professional situation where I think it's going to make a difference. And it, it's completely turned the whole investment around. And now that's going to be its major source of attention. Hmm. I, I love the fact that you're, you have this level of situational awareness, because I think oftentimes many people miss that component when it comes to communication. But, mm-hmm. but you know, there's this um, thing of, you know, inhospitable environments that you that you mentioned or like hostile environments. Well, I know for a fact, sometimes in our head, and hostile might be too strong of a word, but sometimes we have internal environments that we have to deal with. And, and so I'm just curious, have has there ever been a, a time when you had to address or overcome a personal bias or something that was like put in front of you? It's like there's there's a mirror based upon an experience that you had that you had to kind of confront. I'm not perfect. (laughs) I'll be the first one to say it. We had a situation just the other day in our meeting when I said that I wanted to hire a woman of color. Mm -hmm. And you guys just sort of sat back being men of color. And, uh, and I had to kind of defend why it was a woman. And then, you know, through the course of the day and through the night, I figured, you know what, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Like, that's my bias, but I'm not asking the community what they would react better to, am I? Right? How about them? So, yeah, so that's, that's a situation. 
Um, I'll give you a kind of a funny one. When I was in college, I had a African-American roommate and she was getting her master's in public health and I was getting my nursing degree. Never met her before. We were just like, we just took the apartment and we were together. And one day, and she was from Co-op City outside of New York. And I was from, you know, a white suburb. And I asked her one day if I could borrow something. I don't know what it was. It was like, you know, chili pepper or something like that. And she, she looked at me. She said, I don't lend and I don't borrow. Whoa. And I was, that was my reaction. I was like, <laughs> yeah. whoa. Yikes. But I thought about it for a second. And I was like, well, you know, she grew up in Co-op City. And I know nothing about what that's like. So, and it's on me to respect this woman and her thing. And now she's living with somebody that she doesn't know anything about either. So I couldn't condemn her for it. We ended up being great friends and lending and borrowing. <laughs> and, uh, and actually we bumped into each other years later at an AIDS conference. And I was giving a talk there and she, she was running a, um, a preschool for children with AIDS. And it was just so funny that we, we met again as colleagues on sort of even playing ground and uh, we were both impressed with one another. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's so, a great story because I think some of the most endearing uh, friendships or strong friendships that have that elasticity to, to make it through the passage of time begin in ways that, you know, could not go so well. And, and it's yeah. just those moments of when we respect where people are and we communicate and we think about the situation, consider ourselves, consider them. It's, it's so it's so powerful. And it's good to see that, you know, you all have had that development and got to, you know, reconnect. Um, well, so, self-confidence, again, doesn't mean you're always right, but you have to be confident enough to consider the fact that you might have been wrong and that it's OK. We could, we could stop right now. <laughs> drop the mic. We, we could literally drop the mic on that one point to have right. enough confidence to recognize that you are wrong. Yeah. Mm, because admitting that you're wrong doesn't diminish who you are. It's a moment, right? It enhances who you are. A hundred percent. It enhances mistakes are where the growth and the progress begins. Mm. You know, we could trundle along, but until I do something wrong and I recognize that I can't fix it. Mm. So right. that's, that's where the growth begins. So I've got to ask you, because I think a lot of that confidence also has to do with overcoming the fear of failure, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're saying, you know, until something goes wrong, I can't fix it or grow. And, and a lot of times people don't even get that opportunity because they might be stuck on the fence. So if there's someone who's listening right now who is on the fence about starting an initiative, uh, you know, as far as an outreach, mm -hmm. what advice would you give them? go for it, you know, uh, to, to educate yourself as much as possible with the population that you hope to serve or the initiative that you hope to start and find people you can trust and have a, a good, valid conversation with. You don't have to agree on everything, but you can, you know, you can at least know that your heart's in the right place, my heart's in the right place, and, and maybe we can come to an understanding. And just recognize that you're going to make mistakes and, but that if your heart's in the right place and you put a lot of effort into it, 
it can work. You know, it'll be not only can it work, but it'll pay huge dividends. Mm. And I believe that those will be financial dividends as well. But the real important part is Mm. the non-financial stuff, right? Yeah, the impact, Um, the fulfillment. Hmm? I said the impact and the fulfillment, you know, pursuing that thing that was inside of you and making it come alive, you know? But, you know, people ask me a lot, you know, you know, what do you want your legacy to be and all this bit? The fulfillment is not for me. The fulfillment is when the guys in the barn are feeling like, oh my God, we're really helping these guys that came out of Blackburn and they're, they're changing their perceptions Mm. and, you know, they're helping out those guys. And then those guys help out them and you form a new community. Okay. That's, that's the cool part. And I got nothing to do with that other than bringing people to the table. I mean, creating Um, the environment is, that's a massive thing to do with that. I think creating corporate culture is huge, but I'm not the only person creating corporate culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yes, you have to have an open door policy, right? Mm -hmm. People. So when people come with me to their, to me with their ideas, I love to go down the road with them with those ideas. And I've had some people come up with some incredible ideas and we've put some of them into action. Some we couldn't, but that is where it starts. And that's not about me. That Well, I mean, it's about me having an open door policy, but the downstream is about everybody else and where they go with this thing. It's like, you're, you're so confident, but at the same time, uh, you, you want to be cognizant not to like overly take credit and acknowledge the other parts and the factors, which I think is probably one of the reasons why you're able to create a certain kind of culture. But when you're when you're faced with, um, you know, growing a business or, or growing things to where, you know, you, you're putting diversity on the forefront, there might come a situation in which, you know, you're faced with someone making uh, racist decisions or, you know, racist comments or biased comments uh, or remarks, you know, how do you respond in that? You fire them. What if they're not like, (laughs) I I like your answer with the, (laughs) because I feel like if, if we only fire people and we don't give them an opportunity to be educated and then also see the, see the willingness to, you know, reconcile from the party that was offended, but firing in and of itself can be an incredible lesson. Okay. Uh, But I would, I would say like, what if it's not someone that's working for you? What if it's like a business partner or someone that you are, you know, in um, some type of group organizational situation? Yeah. Well, let me just say, you don't always fire them that I sort of said that for impact. And I have had to fire somebody for exactly that reason, because, you know, there are people whose viewpoints and way they practice can be changed. And there are people who they can't. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we do try to pursue that. We do try to say, you know, are you willing to change? You know, are you, you know, we try and look into, and and affect change, but I'm never going to change somebody's core values. Yeah, you know I can try and influence them and see if there's movement there. But if there isn't, just like any doesn't have to be race. It can be anything. One bad apple, you know. If you leave that bad apple in place, it's it, uh, 
it really can wreck the whole thing. And part of what I do and my COO does is figure out who the rotten apples are because it's too, the ecosystem is too valuable to be laid waste to by one bad apple. Mm. You know, you can't let that spread and you can help somebody see the value in being inclusive. But if they're not going to get there and that's one of your primary values and goals for your organization, you know, not a lot you can do. Mm. And, and I think, although it may not always be easy, I think it's easier to take like positive action when you are dealing with someone who is employed by you, but what if they're not employed by you? What if it's. Yeah. Like, okay. So let's say we had a high school student come in who had suffered trauma through his life and he was coming to learn about the, you know, equestrianism and and this industry and stuff. I'd probably bend over backwards for that individual. They're not employed by me. They're not in a position of, you know, affecting somebody's work life Mm -hmm. so much. You know, they're not in charge of somebody They're And they've, their issues have been identified likely. That's a different scenario. That's that's an education scenario. That's not a business scenario so much. That's something that I would reach out for assistance to make sure that, you know, I, I, I'm no therapist. <laughs> I am no therapist. So I, I would rather elicit the help of somebody who knew how to address whatever the child's interest would be in his best interest or her best interest. So um, that's a that's a different scenario. Mm-hmm. When you're talking with adults, I think you're. Yeah, it's a different situation. What if we were playing golf? You know, oh, if we were playing golf, and I'm I'm a business owner. You're a yep. business owner. We're just out there playing golf, right? And then I throw out this golf joke that you're just like, wow, and yeah. it's just riddled with racism. I know that never happens, but if it did, <laughs> how would you? How would like how would you address that? Because I think that's some of the real situations that people might encounter. And it's like, you know, I'm just curious, like, how would you totally put you on the spot here? Listen, you don't always like everybody you play golf with. Right. If it's a friend, I might say something. If it's somebody I figure is a lost, like they're not my best buddy. I may choose not to play golf with them again. Yeah. But I'm not going to change this idiot's mind. Right. Just because I say. I don't like the way, you know, you shouldn't talk like that or something. It's going to be ineffectual. And, uh, and not that it shouldn't be said, but, you know, sometimes there's just diminishing returns and you can, (laughs) you can say, huh? I said, it is a law. Yeah. I could say something like, yeah, I don't care for jokes like that, Mm -hmm. but that's probably as far as I would go. I just kind of like, don't say those things around me. I'm not going to start up a whole conversation unless they're a friend. Yeah. You know, because you but, have that opportunity to maybe reach them. But in that in that circumstance, I think yeah. just not accepting it and especially not laughing is huge because I, oh, I wouldn't laugh. Oh, I, I wouldn't laugh. Fact, there are people that don't believe in it, you right. know, when they hear something like that. But because they're uncomfortable, mm-hmm. they're like, hey, hey. You know, it's like, yeah. so you, you kind of empower it by laughing and make it okay. So. Yeah, but ha 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 isn't a laugh. Ha ha yeah. ha is like, yeah, I don't really agree with that. 
a belly laugh is a belly laugh, mm-hmm. you know, and a nothing is. Yeah. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. Listen, we all make jokes like that. There's sexist jokes like that. We, among ourselves, in our within our own communities, we make jokes like that, and that's acceptable. But it's not acceptable across communities, um, across cultures. I'm not ready to condemn anybody for not speaking out against it every time they hear it, because I've seen what can happen if you do. You know, okay. So my nephew came out as gay, and my sister would not tolerate anything that even sniffed of anti-homosexuality, and that's fine. But the way she went about it was so adversarial gotcha. that she got more backlash than she got. Oh, you're right. I should process that more. Wow. You know, so it's 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 the manner in which you bring up the topic. All the right? time. So if I had said something and she had said quiet to me off to the side, hey, you know, that that pushes a button for me and I really don't want my son to get hurt. Wow. Huh. I get a whole different reaction, right? Mm. That's then I'm open. Then I'm like, oh yeah, right. I screwed up and I'm not going to screw up again. Man, that's awesome. Right. All right. Switching gears. Yep. As, as a business owner, as a, as a, as a woman who's a business owner, what unique barriers um, have you had to overcome? You know, if any, well, money talks, right? So it's a lot easier when you're an affluent woman. That's just going to put that right out there. Mm-hmm. But you do get tested. When I first moved to Lexington and uh, started the farm and, you know, I hired a manager for the farm. Fortunately, I hired a really good one. And, and fortunately, there are quite a number of other female farm owners here in Lexington. So because when you're the sole owner. Well, I was married then. And it was interesting because people would go right to my husband and ask him and he hadn't he didn't have anything to do with it. So he's like, oh, no, you got to talk to her. So that's a bias, right? That people had, but it's not, it didn't hurt me or affect me really. So I just, so I had to be mindful of that, of people trying to take advantage of me because they thought I didn't know. And and I just found, again, people that I trusted and who would fight for me until I learned, you know, what the cost of a fence post really is. Mm. Yes. And then the other thing is in EU, the industry is largely run by men. And so their interaction with me, I had to pass a test, if you will, of my knowledge and my seriousness in this industry for them to take me seriously. But other than that, I, I don't I don't feel any particular bias. I mean, I ignore it, to be honest with you, when I encounter it, because it really doesn't matter in my life, in my world. I'll just continue on. Love it. <laughs> you know, but I, I have the privilege of being able to say that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Right. But I think everyone can say that if they make the decision, you know, because, yep. you know, bias or whatever, you know, any barrier is an opportunity to decide, do I keep moving forward, is it important enough to me or do I let this stop me? I feel like every barrier presents you with that choice. And, you know, speaking of that, speaking of choices, if there is someone listening right now who is on the fence about starting a business or becoming an entrepreneur, what advice would you give them? 
Um, I would say work very systematically at acquiring a skill set that's going to allow you to succeed. And that skill set may be a little different than what you think it is, but it should include things like accounting and public speaking and not just what your topic is, but, you know, I, w- I was a nurse. I'm in the equine industry. I knew nothing about horses. I didn't even ride. So you can acquire those skills, but some basic skills like writing, communication, marketing, accounting will give you the foundations that you can become a business person. Hmm. It doesn't matter the business. Develop your nose. You should be able to recognize when somebody is trustworthy and somebody isn't Hmm. and pay attention to that. Find people who you can trust because you need to know what you know and know what you don't know. And if, and if you don't know, go find somebody who does. Right. Because I think people in my position often think they can do it all. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can never be as good as like, I'm a Jack of all trades, master of none. That's how I look at it. I'm good at a lot of stuff, but I'm not the best at any of them but I know how to get people in the room and connect the dots and find people who can help me. And that's a, that's a good skill for an entrepreneur or business person to have. And then let the people who are really good at what they do, do their job, support them, you know, and believe them. Don't second guess them all the time, you know, fine, put it in your business paradigm, what you know about how the rest of your business runs and whether that'll fly or not. But give them the tools so that they can actually do their job and do it well. That's probably the best. Oh, and then I always tell my kids, I said, then keep your finger up in the air, get your skill set, and then keep your finger up in the air. Feel the change in the wind. When the wind blows a certain way, believe it, Mm -hmm. trust yourself. Those are the ideas. Those are the concepts that come along that you can catch them. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes minority and female-owned businesses in particular do so well. They've got their finger on the pulse. They can feel they it. know what's going down. And they're operating in the world all day. They're not in an office somewhere with the secretary and interacts with the world. So you know. So keep your finger up there. When there's a wind going in a particular direction address that, you know, pay attention. It's not an accident. Well, I have enjoyed talking with you. Just two things. One Mm -hmm. is I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. The rest of that phrase I learned not too long ago is, but it's better to know a lot about a little than none. Yeah, that's true. It is. It really is. And Mm -hmm. Something my father used to tell me all the time, especially when I was a young teenager, hard-headed, and just, you know, I knew everything. Yeah. He would tell me, and I think he would say this when he reached his, like, limit, and he was like, okay. (laughs) He would say, you can do anything in this world that you want to do, but make sure you know what you're doing. Yeah. That's the same thing. You need to have the skill set. You need to be ready. You need to know what you know. That's it. It's really important. 
that you have some clarity about who you are and what your limits are. That's key. You know, that's, and it doesn't matter what you get involved with. It's as long as you love it, because this is a journey. You only go around once and you, you want to enjoy that journey as much as you can. That's, you know, and that's different things to different people. True story. And those of us who want to put out positive thing, positive energy in the world, we need to make up for all those people who want to put negative energy into the world. We need to overcome that. We need to, we have to end up with a net positive. <laughs> that is your contribution when you die. You know, net positive. you want to end up with a net positive. Net positive with Lisa Laurie. You just heard it here, folks. <laughs> and I happen to agree. So I will co-sign that sentiment. And I know that you are definitely helping to work toward that net positive. I appreciate you for everything you do for the community. And thanks for sharing some time, some wisdom, some nuggets with our listeners. It's Thank been you. impactful. It's been great. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Likewise. Talk soon. One of the nonprofit organizations that Lisa helps support is the Legacy Equine Academy. The Legacy Equine Academy is a nonprofit organization that serves to bridge the historical contributions of African American trailblazers such as Ansel Williamson, Isaac Murphy, Oliver Lewis, and Ed Brown to the modern traditions and future opportunities in the horse racing industry and agriculture. The Academy focuses on bringing equine and agricultural exposure, learning opportunities, and scholarships to African-American and racially diverse youth. Learn more about this purpose-driven organization by visiting LegacyEquineAcademy.com. If you like this episode and if you like P-Chat-P, you can find and subscribe on all major podcast platforms. You can support us at pchatp.com. We hope you join us in changing the world by changing how we talk to it. This episode was directed and produced by Marshall Fields with music and audio engineering by Chris Brueggemann.